The following is from the April 17, 2021 conference, End U.S. Support for Israeli Apartheid. All conference information is available at www.israelapartheidcon.org. Our first session today features three wonderful speakers who will be discussing Israeli apartheid and the international community. We'll have the question and answer session after all three have spoken, but please send in your questions as they arise. Julia Pittner will be monitoring and collecting them throughout the session, so there's no need to wait until the last minute to send them in. And again, you can use the Q&A function on the Zoom or email them to ask at israellobbycon.org. So our first speaker today is Susan Abuhawa, the acclaimed Palestinian-American poet and writer. She is the author of the international best-selling novel, Mornings in Janine, and her second novel, The Blue Between Sky and Water, was sold in 19 languages before its release. Her latest novel, Against the Loveless World, is a Palestine Book Awards winner. She is also an activist and founded Playgrounds for Palestine, an NGO upholding the right of Palestinian children to play. To raise funds to build more playgrounds, Susan recently launched AIDA, a private label olive oil from Palestinian farmers. Today, she will describe why Israel is an apartheid state, as reported by the Israeli human rights group B'Tselem, which concluded that Israel is, quote, advancing and cementing the supremacy of one group, Jews, over another, Palestinians. Moreover, Susan has experienced this personally. Her family fled Jerusalem after Israel launched its 1967 war, and she was born in Kuwait three years later. She came to this country as a teenager. As she told Amanda Weiss podcast last December, my exile and the destruction of my family and the destruction of everything of our whole world has defined my whole life in so many ways and in very personal ways. Israel has twice denied her entry to her homeland. In 2015, when she attempted to scout new locations for playgrounds for Palestine, and again in 2018, when she was scheduled to appear at a Palestinian literary festival in Ramallah. Israel has been unable, however, to sever her profound attachment to Palestine. And we couldn't be more pleased to have her join us today. Susan? Thank you, Janet. Um, And it's nice to be back with the Washington Report and the Institute for Research on Middle East Policy. Um, I'm just going to give a brief overview of apartheid um, and a top-line comparison between South African and Israeli apartheid systems. Um, The word apartheid comes from the Dutch Afrikaans language. It means separateness. It was a white supremacist ideology conceived by the descendants of Dutch colonists in South Africa. Although the concept of apartheid emerged in the early 1930s, it wasn't formalized as a political, social, and legal reality until 1948, ironically, the same year that Israel was created, wherein Zionism, another face of white supremacy, was formalized as a political, social, and legal reality in Palestine. South Africa's Nationalist Party implemented apartheid through such things as a color bar, a hierarchical social stratification system based on race. Israel does not have a color bar, but they do have color-coded license plates, color-coded ID cards that identify one's religion, which has been the basis of their own social, political, and legal stratification of human beings living there. 
South Africa had something called pass laws, which restricted the movements of indigenous South Africans, generally confining them to restricted Bantu stands, unless they had a passbook, which was given to those who served as cheap labor for the ruling white minority. Israel has a far more elaborate mechanism that, that restricts the movement of people and goods, hundreds of checkpoints making life hell for Palestinian individuals trying to get from one Palestinian town to another Palestinian town, and a near impossibility to enter Jerusalem or the Dachel, that part of Palestine stolen from us in 1948 by European Zionists. Some Palestinians are given permits, or passbooks, if you will, to enter these 1948 territories as cheap labor. Often, if they overstay overnight, um, their permit allotment, they're imprisoned. The daily commute alone is a horror show of humiliation and abuse for hundreds of thousands of Palestinian laborers. The recent short film by Farah Nabulsi, The Present, which just won the BAFTA award and is nominated for an Oscar, touches briefly on one day laborer's life. In Gaza, where two million human beings are locked up in a tiny enclave, Israel prevents students from studying at universities abroad, prevents the sick from seeking medical care outside Gaza, prevents anyone from taking a simple vacation. There are families who have not seen their children, parents, or siblings in decades, even though they're only a few miles away from one another, because Israel has made Gaza a giant prison. Apartheid South Africa instituted anti-miscegenation laws to prevent racial intermarriage. Israel was clever not to explicitly pass such a law, but they, in effect, made it illegal for Jews to marry non-Jews. They accomplished this by requiring all marriages to be performed by religious officials, where rabbinical courts not only strictly forbid interreligious marriage, but also have a bloodline requirement to determine if one, one is Jewish enough to even marry another Jew by the Orthodox Jewish rabbinical court. A Palestinian with Israeli citizenship who marries a Palestinian from the West Bank or Gaza cannot bring their spouse to live with them. In Jerusalem, Palestinians who do not have citizenship but residency status in Israel likewise cannot live with their spouses in Jerusalem and are frequently forced to choose between keeping their families whole or losing their right to live in their own Jerusalem homes or be near their, be near their extended families, the grandparents, aunts, uncles, and cousins. Israel's obsession with religious purity and majority, which is not unlike the Nazi obsession with racial purity, is expressed in a multitude of absurd laws that constantly fret over the so-called demographic threat their fear of Palestinian babies, and in rules that delve into the minutia of Jewish bloodlines and so-called Jewish DNA, which refers to a genetically identifiable subset of European society called Ashkenazi Jews, which does not apply to Jews of other regional origins. These are just some of the similarities between apartheid South Africa and apartheid Israel which are also similar to Nazi Nuremberg and Jim Crow Southern laws. But there are differences. There are big and important differences. The situation in Israel is much worse than it was in South Africa. So said the chairman of the ANC, 
Balekam Becky, Nobel laureate Desmond Tutu, Mandla Mandela, Nelson Mandela's grandson, and many other notable South Africans who fought apartheid. In South Africa, Bantustans, as horrendous as they were, were sustained with government resources to maintain a pool of cheap labor. Within these enclaves, Black South Africans could move freely amongst themselves. They could breathe a little. And rarely did either the police or the military go into their communities. On the other hand, Israel has been actively working to get rid of Palestinians, slowly replacing us with imported Jews from around the world. There is nowhere for Palestinians to be in Palestine where their bodies, spirits, and dignity are not molested in some way by Israeli soldiers or paramilitary settlers. The home demolitions, the daily theft of land, of water, and property, the uprooting, burning, and cutting of fruit-bearing trees, the night raids, the systematic terrorizing of children, a matter of military policy to ensure Palestinians grow up fearing Israelis. The raiding, tear gassing, closing, restricting, and bombing of schools to ignorize our children through trauma. Not even in their most depraved hour did white South Africans bomb black South Africans with heavy war death machines, planes, helicopters, and tanks. Not in their most depraved hour did they calculate the calories allowed into Bantustans to keep millions of human beings on the edge of starvation. Not in their most depraved hour did they bomb and destroy water infrastructure, places of worship, sewage treatment plants, electrical grids, schools, playgrounds, or hospitals in order to break and destroy whole populations. We use the analogy of apartheid because it fits and it has a historic resonance. It is understood and appropriately repudiated. But Israel is worse, both qualitatively, as I've just said, and quantitatively, as Israeli apartheid has endured 30 years and counting longer than apartheid South Africa. I appreciate that Betzalem, Israel's largest human rights organization, finally applied the word apartheid to their society. But I'd like to point out that this is not something that just crept up on them. It is not the result of increasingly right-wing governments. It is not because of Netanyahu or Trump. It is simply the condition of Israeli rule since they first conquered Palestine, expelling 80% of the indigenous population, putting those remaining under military rule for 18 years while they stole everything they could get their hands on, and instituting a legal system that designed to keep those Palestinians as inferiors. Palestinians have always spoken of this injustice. We've always decried it since Zionism first arrived on our shores with guns. I'm glad our Israeli counterparts have caught up. They are seven decades late, but they've arrived and we're glad for it. Years ago, <clears throat> I gave a keynote talk at the first North American BDS conference, which was held at the University of Penn. For that talk, I researched some of Israel's laws and military orders that have been used to oppress and break Palestinians. And I'm going to begin my closing by reading a few of these laws. The first part are laws within Israel that apply to uh, Israeli or Palestinian citizens of Israel. Section 5 in the Law of Political Parties and Section 7a of the Basic Law 
stipulates that any party platform that calls for full and complete equality between Jews and non-Jews can be disqualified from any political post. The law demands that Palestinian citizens may not challenge the state's Zionist identity. The law of return states that every Jew has the right to become a citizen no matter where they come from, while the indigenous non-Jewish inhabitants who were expelled in 1948 and 67 are expressly barred from returning to their homes. The Nakba law penalizes any institution that commemorates or publicly mourns the expulsion of the native Palestinian population. The anti-boycott law provides that anyone calling for the boycott of Israel or its illegal settlements can be sued by the boycott's targets without having to prove that they sustain damage, and then the court will decide how much compensation is to be paid. The admission committee's law formally allows neighborhood screening committees to prevent non-Jewish citizens from living in Jewish communities that control over 81% of the territory in Israel. The nation-state law states that the right to exercise self-determination is unique to the Jewish people, relegating indigenous Palestinian Christians and Muslims as subjects. This law establishes Hebrew as the official language, downgrading Arabic, the language spoken by the indigenous population for centuries in the land. The law also establishes Jewish settlements as a national value, mandating state resources for the expansion of illegal Jewish-only colonies built on confiscated Palestinian land. The amendment to the citizenship law stipulates that an Israeli citizen who marries a Palestinian cannot live as a couple in Israel with his or her spouse. A Palestinian spouse can neither gain citizenship nor residency. 93% of the land, the vast majority of which was confiscated from Palestinian owners after 1948, can only be owned by Jewish agencies for the benefit of Jews only. One of these agencies is the Jewish National Fund, which in its charter forbids the sale or lease to non-Jews. The Specified Goods Tax and Luxury Tax Law, Article 26, authorizes lower import taxes for Jewish citizens of Israel compared to non-Jewish citizens of Israel. The National Planning and Building Laws of 65, through various zoning laws, freezes the growth of existing Palestinian villages while providing for the expansion of Jewish settlements and the creation of new ones. The law also reclassifies a large portion of established ancient Palestinian villages as, quote, unrecognized and therefore non-existent which allows the state to cut off water and electricity, as well as to simply appropriate the property. Appropriations are carried out under the Requisitions Law, which allows a competent authority to requisition the land called a requisition order, so that only he may, quote, use and exploit the land as he sees fit. This applies to home requisition orders as well, whereby another quote, competent authority who can order the occupier, this is a quote, the order the occupier of a house to surrender the house to the control of a person specified in the order for residential purposes or for any other use as may be prescribed in the order, unquote. In the education sector within Israel, as an example, the state spends $192 per year per non-Jewish student compared to 1,100 per Jewish student. A mosque law has been debated off and on to prohibit the broadcasting of the Muslim call to prayer, which has been sounding over that land 
since the dawn of Islam. Also, for the first time in the history of Islam and the history of Christianity, Palestinian Muslims and Christians in the West Bank and Gaza are consistently denied access to their holy places of Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Even, even on the high holy days of Eid, Christmas, and Easter Sunday. In fact, since Israel took the West Bank, the Christian population has declined from 20,000 in 1967 to less than 7,500 today. Palestinians who live in the West Bank are subject to military orders, which are arbitrarily issued by a military commander and which immediately become law. Here are some examples of these military orders, of which there are literally thousands. Military Order 1229 authorizes Israel to hold Palestinians in administrative detention for up to six months without charge or trial. Six-month detentions can be renewed indefinitely without charge or trial. Military Order 329 and 1650 effectively prevents Palestinians from being anywhere in the West Bank without a specific permit to be there, making it a criminal offense to go from one Palestinian town to another. Military Order 92 and 158 gives the Israeli military control of all water resources in the West Bank, which belong to Palestinians in the first place. Israel then allows the Palestinian access to only a fraction of the shared water resources, while unlawful Israeli settlements receive virtually unlimited supplies, creating a reality of green lawns and swimming pools for Jewish settlers and a parched life for Palestinians whose access to water, according to the WHO, does not meet the minimum requirements for basic human needs. Furthermore, that fraction of confiscated Palestinian water is sold to Palestinians at 300% more than what it costs Jewish settlers in the same area. Military Orders 811 and 847 allows Jews to purchase land from unwilling Palestinian sellers by using the, quote, power, power of attorney. Military Order 25 forbids public inspection of land transactions. Military 120, Order 128 gives the Israeli military the right to take over any Palestinian business which is not open during regular business hours. Military Order 138 and 134 forbids Palestinians from operating tractors or other heavy farm machinery on their land. Military Order 93 gives all Palestinian insurance businesses to the Israeli insurance syndicate. And Military Order 1015 requires Palestinians to get military permission to plant and grow fruit trees. This permit expires every year. Again, this is just a sampling of Israel's legal infrastructure which is multi-tiered to apply to individuals based on their religion, religion and place of residence. Today, we'll hear from experts who will expand our understanding of Israeli apartheid to explain why and how it has endured and avoided scrutiny while apartheid in South Africa was brought to its knees. I would like to urge everyone listening to become involved in putting an end to this monumental injustice. Israel's 74-year assault on Palestinians is an affront to humanity. It continues in part because the United States funds it. I'd like to point out that Betty McCollum has reintroduced a bill to condition aid to Israel on Israeli adherence to human rights standards, in particular 
that no U.S. tax dollars be used to imprison and torture Palestinian children. This is a minimal recognition of Palestinian humanity, though it is sadly the only such bill to be introduced. I urge everyone listening to call and write your representative to co-sponsor and support this bill because it lays the groundwork upon which all of us can build a little compassion and justice into U.S. political system when it comes to Palestine. And beyond that, I encourage all of you to support Palestinian endeavors. Read our books, watch our films, engage in our institutions, buy our products, and lobby your lawmakers. For our part, Palestinians will never walk away from this struggle. Never. In the words of Zayev Jabotinsky, one of the early Zionist forefathers, he said, They, Palestinians, look upon Palestine with the same instinctive love and true favor the Aztecs looked upon Mexico or any Sioux looked upon his prairie. Palestine will remain for the Palestinians not a borderland, but their birthplace, the center and basis of their own national existence. Thank you. 